following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark 16, that is page number 853. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of us, it's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, Parents, kids... Obviously, this is a different Sunday. Normally, we have child care, children's church provided. We are providing it up through K-5, so if you've got a K-5 or under-aged child, they can certainly go, but we wanted to keep uh, our other children in with us today, so hopefully that'll be a blessing, hopefully. Uh, Thank you also to all of you who came out on Friday night to the Good Friday service. I enjoyed that tremendously. I mean, I said to somebody afterwards, I don't remember who I was talking to now, but um, the reality is, is that the four churches that were represented there that night are all different. We're different in many respects, but we're all the same in many respects, too, particularly that we worship the same Lord, we believe the same gospel, and we're working to the same end. And so it was a nice opportunity, I thought, to highlight that, not, again, patting ourselves on the back, just reminding us that the kingdom of God is not limited to any one of our churches. So thank you for being a part of that. And then third... um, I was up this morning early, as I usually am on a Sunday morning, and it was 5.30. I'm sitting at my desk, I'm drinking my cup of coffee, and I'm getting ready for this morning, and I hear the pitter-patter of rain outside my door, and I thought to myself, man, I'm glad we don't do a sunrise service. Amen? (laughs) I knew of another church in town that was doing one, and I'm sitting there looking at the radar going, how is that going to work now? I don't even know what you would do with that, so uh, we're glad we're here. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then as we normally do, we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us into this passage this morning. I pray that as we work through it, we will be reminded of the truths that are here, that you will apply them to our hearts very specifically and directly this morning, that we will come out of here today remembering that Every Sunday is a day we we gather to worship you. Every Sunday is a reminder of Easter for us because of the resurrection, because of you living in us and through us. I pray that today will highlight that fact for us in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I haven't said something to you yet, so I'll say it now. Happy Easter. Um, If you know me well at all, then you may be somewhat amused at my greeting you in this manner, as it has been pretty well known over the years that I'm not really a big fan of the Easter holiday. I like Christmas quite a bit, but I don't like Easter very much at all. And uh, I tried to think through this week. I mean, I sometimes feel like a dork doing this, but I tried to think through this week, why is it that I like Christmas, but I don't really like Easter? And as I 
thought through my reasoning, I guess it really came down to two main uh, components. One has to do with our culture and how they view those two holidays, and the other, I think, has to do with just the fact that I'm a pastor and you deal with this kind of stuff in a different way at that point. But, but to me, Christmas has become nothing more than a cultural holiday in, in our nation. Um, sure, some folks see a lot of spiritual significance in it, and I think at Christmas we should try to at least highlight some of that uh, as believers and as a church. But by and large, our culture in general has moved away from viewing Christmas in any kind of a religious or, or spiritual context. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing, because there is absolutely no biblical warrant whatsoever for celebrating the birth of Jesus. None. none. You can look where you want. I mean, let's face it, of the four Gospels, only two of them even mention the birth of Jesus. The other two seem completely uninterested at all. There's not really a big point of emphasis in the rest of the New Testament on his birth, on his incarnation, yes, but not specifically on the act or the events of his birth. And so the fact that we celebrate his birth at all is really kind of weird if you think about it. And so for me, that our culture has moved away from viewing Christmas as being a, a spiritual holiday about the birth of Jesus isn't, isn't really a big deal to me. It's, it, if it's a cultural holiday, that's fine. Easter, on the other hand, very much continues to be, even in our culture's understanding, the, the religious holiday of Christianity. And I probably should restate that in order to make the point a little clearer. In our culture's mind, Easter is the religious holiday for Christianity. It's as if this is the holiest of all Sundays, the pinnacle of the Christian calendar. How many of you have heard that kind of terminology used to refer to Easter just by people in the world? And I think that's what bothers me because as I have said many, many, many times, and I'm going to say it again this morning, and I apologize for repeating myself, for us as believers, every Sunday is Easter, okay? If you, if you end up with your time at Cornerstone and you remember nothing else, at least remember that point, that every Sunday is Easter. The reason that the church meets on Sunday mornings and has done so for as far back as we can see and remember is because it was this day of the week that our Lord rose from the dead. We, we gather to worship him and, and remember his resurrection every Sunday, not just, not just one Sunday a year. And so to single out this one particular Sunday as being more important or more significant, spiritually speaking, than, than last Sunday was or than the next Sunday is, it just doesn't make any sense. As a cultural phenomenon, it is treated and viewed differently, and we accommodate that to a point, and I'm okay with that. But spiritually and biblically speaking, there is nothing more special today than any other Sunday. We have gathered to sing songs of worship and praise to our God today, just like we have every other Sunday. We have gathered to pray and fellowship together today, just like we do every Sunday. We have gathered together to, to understand and study God's word and apply it to our hearts today, just like we do every other Sunday. And so today, we're going to do the same thing that we've been doing for almost every Sunday for three years now, which is crazy to me. In fact, I just said that to someone the other day, and they were like, three years? I'm like, yeah, three years almost. Next month would be, or May would be three years, but um, we're going we're gonna to study the Gospel of Mark. Now, having said all of that, I do have to acknowledge something, all right? I, 
It's Easter Sunday, and we are going to be in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, studying the resurrection of Jesus. If you have been with us through these three years or any large portion of those three years, then you will probably understand that there was absolutely no way in this world we could have predicted or planned that we would be in this particular passage on this particular Sunday. In fact, it wasn't even until we were, uh, during the Christmas holiday, as I was sitting down right after Christmas and kind of looking where we were at and where we were going, what we had left, that I first realized, man, we could, actually, we could actually be in Mark 16 on Easter Sunday. And so I pulled out a, a pen and paper, which is what I, I kind of normally do when I'm trying to figure out preaching schedule. And I, I looked through what was left in front of us, and I tried to estimate about how much time it would take to cover each particular point. And I was like, wow, this, this could work. And here we are now, three months later, and sure enough, we're here. So uh, what, what a journey it's been, right? I mean, over the past three months, think about all we've done. We've sat with Jesus in the upper room. We, we followed him deep into the garden and got to watch him there in prayer. We were witnesses of both phases of his trials, of his trial. Uh, we watched in horror and awe as he was tortured and crucified. We saw the moment when Jesus became the substitute for our sins and died in our place. And then last week, we followed his body to the tomb, and we left him there. And I can say to you, just personally speaking, never in my life, at least, have I spent, I should say as a believer at least, never in my life have I spent as much time thinking about and meditating on these events as we have in the past three months. And I am pretty sure that it, for me again, I can safely say I will never read them the, the same way ever again. And, and that's, that's a good thing for me. So today, finally... We come to the pinnacle of the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, and that is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. And so, just like we've done with everything else up to this point, we're going to walk through the text, we're going to make sure we understand what's going on, what Mark is trying to help us see, because Mark is presenting it in a particular kind of way, and then we'll stop and make some observations and applications about what we've seen at the end. As Mark has done quite a bit here in this final section, he begins by setting the scene for us in various ways. He gives us some timestamps and some details to just help us get our minds around what's going on. The, the first timestamp he gives us is this one, that when the Sabbath was passed, and if you've been with us through the study, you know that the Jewish Sabbath begins on, at Friday night, our Friday night at sundown, and it goes until Saturday night at sundown. And, and so what's happening now is happening after the Sabbath. The second timestamp is that it was very early on the first day of the week. Now, for us in our culture, we tend to think of Mondays as being the first day of the week. Sundays is the last day, but not for the Jews. In the Jewish mind, they built their week or their understanding of the week off of the creation account, just like God worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, he rested. So their week was structured that there would be six days of work, and the Sabbath day was, excuse me, was the final day. It was the day of rest. It was the end of their week, which meant that for, for them, what we would think of as Sunday was the first day of their week. The third time stamp tells us a little more detail about the time that day. In verse 2, here you see that Mark says it was very early on the first day. Well, well, how early? Are we talking right after sundown on Saturday? Are we talking in the middle of the night, early that morning when it's still dark? No, it's not early enough that it's still dark. No, the sun has risen here, so it's clearly what we would think of as, as Sunday morning, near or just after sunrise. And not only does he set the stage with these 
timestamps here, he also tells us about the main characters that are involved at this particular moment and what exactly it is they're doing going to the tomb in the first place. Mark lists three women here who go to the tomb that morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and a woman named Salome. And we've seen these women before. They were at the crucifixion just a couple of scenes ago, standing there watching Jesus be crucified. At least two of them, the two Marys, accompanied Jesus' body to Joseph's tomb and may have actually been somewhat involved in helping prepare his body for burial on that Friday afternoon. And the reason they're going here early on this Sunday morning is so that they can finish the work of preparing his body for burial. As I explained to you last week, in a normal situation, in a normal Jewish burial, once someone was, was dead, their body would be taken to the tomb, and at that point, they would begin wrapping the body in strips of fabric. And as they would wrap the body, there'd be multiple layers of this, as they would wrap the body, they would stuff spices and ointments and perfumes in amongst the, the, the strips of fabric to help cover the stench of decay. And normally, this would be done as soon as the body's brought into the tomb and would be done all in one sitting. However... This time, it didn't work quite that way because the Sabbath was approaching. Remember, it's Friday afternoon, sometime after 3 o'clock when he dies. When, because the Sabbath is approaching and because they can't work into the Sabbath and because the tomb has to be closed before the Sabbath comes, they don't have time to finish the full burial preparation. And so what we're seeing here is them returning to the tomb to finish the burial. And Mark notes here for us that they're bringing spices so they can go anoint him. And this tells you a little something, does it not, about the heart of the women as they're going to the tomb. They are going in love. Let's not forget that. Let's not downplay that. They're the only ones in this scene who have stayed faithful to Jesus through these, these final moments. The disciples all abandoned him. The guys are all gone. The women are there, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. So they're going in love, yes, but they are clearly not going in faith. They are going there expecting the body to be there. They are going there expecting him to be dead. And this is confirmed for us by the main concern or the main topic of conversation that seems to be heavy on their minds here. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, if you have a mind that's bent toward physics or mechanics, that concern might, might puzzle you a bit. And if you do not have a mind that is bent toward physics or mechanics, now you're puzzled as to why the other people are puzzled about this particular con or, or comment here. Well, let me, let me try to help you explain for a moment. We can all assume rightly, I hope, that the stone in question is a big, round, heavy stone, right? Okay. But there's a, a key word in that assumption that should probably jump out at, at us and will help you understand why some people might be a little confused, and that was the word round. If it's completely round, then it's just a big wheel, and wheels aren't that hard to roll and to push. Uh, however, in reality, the stone we're talking about here is probably not just a big wheel. I showed you this picture last Sunday of a typical uh, carved burial chamber there in Israel. So if you weren't here... This is not the burial chamber of Jesus. We don't know which burial chamber it was. I'm just making sure that's very clear. But I want you to notice something this time that I didn't point out to you last time. Look very carefully at the stone. Do you notice anything special about it? You notice there's this part right here that's not round. It's actually kind of flat. You see it now? That, that is so that when the stone is rolled into place, it would stay put. It's kind of the point of putting a stone in front of, a, of an entrance that you don't want people to come into. You want it to, to stay put. 
but it also makes it a lot harder to move out of the way and is why the women are, are, are discussing this. They're, they're trying to figure out whether or not they'll be able to find someone who will be in the, to, uh, the area of the tomb who can rock this thing and eventually push it out of the way so that they can get in and do the work. So, so this is kind of the setting as we begin the scene. But beginning here in verse 4, you see that something's going on. And, and it's interesting how Mark puts this next piece of information in. I think he does it in a kind of an interesting way. It's almost as if the women, as they're walking and thinking and talking, they're walking like this, right? Like their heads are down and they're just talking amongst themselves, carrying their spices. And before you know it, they're there in front of the tomb. And it's at this moment, finally, they look up and they recognize, hey, here's the tomb, but the stone has already moved, even though it's very large. And while other gospel writers record some of the details around the actual opening of the tomb, what happened, and events that occurred there, Mark doesn't record any details about it at all. It's as if he's unconcerned about that point. He just leaves us with the women standing there just looking at the open tomb going, what happened here? All he tells us is that they entered the tomb, but when they did, they did not find what they were expecting. They were expecting a, a body. They do find a person, but it's not the one they were hoping for. Mark says that rather than finding the body of Jesus, they see a young man sitting on the right side of the tomb dressed in a white robe. And even though Mark doesn't identify who this individual or what this individual is, it is clear from the context, from the description, and from the other Gospels that this is an angel, a messenger from God. And just, I almost was going to go off on a little tangent on this one. I'll just say this. Angels don't have wings. There are other heavenly beings that do, but whenever you see an angel specifically, there's more than one type of heavenly being listed in the scriptures, okay? When you see specifically an angel, he's normally presented as a, a young human-like being. It's a spiritual being, so he's not a human, but he looks like a human. They'll look like that. An angel is simply a messenger from God. That's what the word angel means, is messenger. It's a messenger from God. And obviously the women recognize this about him because, as Mark notes here, they're alarmed. I mean, it's not every day one walks into the tomb of a dead person and instead of finding a body, finds a messenger from God. But like any messenger, he's here, and this messenger has a message to proclaim. He says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And I want, I want you to stop here for a moment. I really want you to, to contemplate the simplicity of the angel's statement. Remember back um, in Mark chapter 15, verse 24, as Mark is describing the events of the death of Jesus, he gets to this point and, and he describes the crucifixion of Jesus by saying nothing more than three words, they crucified him. Now, as we look deeper into what that means we, or meant, we recognize that there was a whole lot going on in those three words, right? Crucifixion was quite a process. It was very involved, and we took a good bit of time to try to understand it, but, but Mark described it with just three words. They, they crucified him, simple, succinct, to the point. And now, here we are on Sunday morning, and the angel's message to the women is no less simple, no less succinct, and no less to the point. He has risen. He is not here. He doesn't provide any explanation. He doesn't give a story. 
Just a simple statement of fact. He has risen. He is not here. And the only proof he can give them or provides to them at this moment is the fact that his body is gone. See the place where they laid him? He's not there. But if I could pause for a moment, I think you need to understand that an empty tomb in and of itself is not proof of the resurrection of Jesus. It's not. And and to prove that, just just think uh, how Matthew records the same moment in his particular gospel. In Matthew's account, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the religious leaders, they acknowledge the reality of the empty tomb. But... They instruct the guards who were there to tell people, hey, listen, just say that his disciples came and stole the body away by night. They they have a story for why the tomb is empty. It's that his body was stolen so the disciples could trick people into believing that he had risen from the dead. And an empty tomb certainly could be proof of that as well, could it not? And so the proof, and I'm putting it in quotation marks for a moment, the proof the angel has given them does not, in the end, actually prove that Jesus has risen. But before we pass judgment, let's finish hearing the angel's message. He goes on to say, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I want you to notice a pattern of sorts here in this message from the angel. If I go back to verse six, notice the following pattern. First, there's a command, right? Do not be alarmed. Secondly, there is a statement of fact. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Third, there's a statement of proof. See the place where they laid him. Okay, you see see the pattern there? You've got command, fact, proof. Now, look for the same pattern in verse 7. There's a command. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There is a statement of fact. There you will see him. And there is a statement of proof. It will be just as he told you. Notice that this time, the statement of proof isn't pointing to an empty spot in a tomb. It's pointing back to nothing less than the truthfulness of Jesus himself. You see that? See the difference between the two? You see, there could be many reasons why the tomb is empty, right? It could be because he's risen from the dead. It could be, as the the religious leaders said, that someone has stolen his body in order to trick people. It could be that animals got in and and dragged it away. It could be that somebody upgraded him to a better suite. I mean, there could be a lot of different reasons why the tomb is empty. But when it comes to the claims of Jesus as to who and what he is and as to what God was going to do through him, and specifically, specifically when it comes to his claims that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day, There's not a multitude of options. Either he's telling the truth or he's lying. Either those claims are real or they're fake. Either they're going to see him because he is now alive or they're not going to see him because he is still dead. And I point this out to you because I want you to remember that in the end, this is the reality in which our faith exists. The Bible, Christianity, the gospel isn't true because of evidence. You understand this? It's not true because of evidence. It is true because of who our God is. Just as an example, I think of the religious leaders who 
had encircled Jesus there as he's being crucified. Remember, remember one of the things they're yelling at him? They're saying to him, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down that we may see and believe. What, what are they asking for? Evidence. They're asking for proof. They want to see it. Well, the reality is I'm pretty sure that even if Jesus had come down from the cross as they had taunted, they still wouldn't have believed. They'd seen evidence before. They'd seen a lot of proof before. They had been present when he had fed the multitudes and cast out demons and healed the sick and raised the dead. And none of those proofs had convinced them. So even if he had come down from the cross here, I don't think this would be any different. Faith, or the lack thereof, isn't based on evidence. Faith is ultimately about one's willingness to take God at his word and to put your confidence and hope in what he says. And if what God says is true, then yes, the evidence will support it. Why is the tomb empty? It is because he's risen. The evidence does go with what God has said. But we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus just because the tomb is empty. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus because God has said it is so. We walk by faith, not by sight. Our faith gives us sight. Sight never gives us faith. And this is in the end what the angel's calling the women to do, to, to walk by faith, not by sight. But as you can see here in verse 8, it may be um, too much, too fast for them all at once in order to to handle this uh, well, as if it probably would be for any of us if we had walked into a tomb thinking we'd find a, a dead body, but instead an angel from God is there giving us this message, I think we would probably react similarly. Mark writes that they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is their initial response, and I won't really address this anymore today, but we'll get to it in a couple of weeks here. Now, I want us to take a few minutes to go back through some of this and consider some of the things that we have seen here uh, in a little more detail. Specifically, I want you to consider five points of similarity to what we've seen previously in Mark's gospel. And I want you to consider two points of difference to what we have seen previously in Mark's gospel. And after each one, I'm going to try to suggest a larger application of the concept on display, all right? So got it? Five similarities, two differences. Here we go. In terms of similarities, here's the first one. Mark's gospel began with God's messenger announcing what God was about to do, right? It was John the Baptist. He was the one announcing, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Remember that? So, so when he was doing that, this was all future tense. Mark's gospel now ends with another messenger announcing what God has done, past tense, and what this does for us is it confirms our belief that the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is the central point of human history. Everything before it was leading up to this moment and everything after has been pointing back, okay? Just as a simple concept. Here's a second but related point of similarity. Isn't it interesting that Mark makes a point of noting how both of those two messengers, the one at the beginning and the one at the end, dress. It's a strange detail, right? In, in, in terms of John the Baptist, the first messenger, Mark made a very specific point to tell us that he was clothed in camel's hair and he wore a leather belt. So here's this guy, he's rough, he's dirty. Uh, you know who he looks like? He looks like an Old Testament prophet. Specifically, he looks like Elijah. That's who he really looks like. But he's very much in the vein and in the mold of the Old Testament prophets in terms of how he is presented in this way. Uh, 
I think that kind of helps us get the sense that it's as if God's uh, representatives from the Old Testament, the prophets of the past, are, are all pointing now to Jesus. And then note how the second messenger, the angel, is dressed. He's wearing a white robe, clean and smooth. Instead of looking like a prophet, he looks like an angel from God, bringing God's message, as if all of God's revelation going forward will also be, will also be pointing back to Jesus. And what this does for us is it confirms our belief that the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is the central point, not just of human history, but of God's revelation as well. What came before pointed to it, what's come after has pointed back. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Similarity number three. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been on the move, right? I mean, Mark has very much presented Jesus as always going. He's always on the way. He's always on the move. He's going this, he's going there, doing this, doing that. Uh, it's been Jesus' modus operandi throughout Mark to keep moving. Isn't it interesting that when the women enter the tomb in Mark's account, he's not there to greet them? He's on the move again. <laughs> the resurrection didn't bring an end to his, his movement. He's on the move again. The angel specifically tells them to tell the disciples to go to Galilee, and there they'll see him as if, as if, it's as if Jesus recognizes that his ministry isn't done just because he's risen from the dead. That would seemingly be a good stopping point. It's not a stopping point. It's a, it's a starting point. It's just the beginning. What this does for us is it reminds us of the fact that we will never reach a place either as individuals or corporately as a church where our ministry is done either. If Jesus is still on the move right after the resurrection, why would we think that we can reach a point of completion? Why would we think that there's a destination that we'll reach in this life? We've got to be on the move too, just like Jesus. Similarity number four, and this is related to number three. Why is this reference to going back to Galilee here anyway? Because if you know anything about the other accounts, where's the first place that he meets them? In Jerusalem. That's where it, and yet... Both Matthew and Mark specifically record this detail that he is going to go before them into Galilee. So why? Well, I suggest a couple of things. First, the command to go to Galilee makes one thing very clear, and that is that Jerusalem is no longer the center of God's work on earth. Now, we saw that in Mark 13, right? We saw that Jesus pronounced, was pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, on that old system. It was clear that he was done there. Uh, the kingdom of God is coming. It's just not going to be centered in Jerusalem anymore. Now the kingdom is going to go to the least likely places. Now the kingdom is going to reach to the least likely people. Jerusalem will not be the center of God's movement. The second reason I think is significant is because going back to Galilee equals going back to ministry. Kind of in line with the, with the last one. You know, this is where the disciples spent the vast majority of their time with Jesus, right? Learning, working, serving, ministering. Uh, this is where they had been along the way. Jesus here is taking them back into the way, taking them right back to where they had come from. And I love the word the angel uses here in verse 7, that he is going before you. That's a bunch of words in English, but in Greek it's one word. It's a very specific term. It doesn't mean that he's going to leave before them as in like, hey, I'll meet you when you get there. hope you catch up soon. Nor does it mean that he's just going to get there first. It sounds like that in English. That's not the point. It means that he is going to go with them and he is going to lead them. Think of a, of a general who leads his army into battle. Think of Lord of the Rings, because I'm a dork. Think of Lord of the Rings. You got Aragon, he's out in front of the army, right? The horses, and so, I mean, he's going before them into battle. He's going with them, and he's leading them. They're, they're there with him, but he's with them. 
Think of a shepherd who goes before the flock into the valley. He just doesn't send them on and say, I hope the wolves don't eat you. You He goes with them. He leads them. Jesus is going before them into Galilee. He's going to go with them and lead them back into the task at hand. And what this does for us is it reminds us that we're not alone in this unfinished mission that, that Jesus has given to us as his church. He hasn't said, you know, here's the mission, now go. Hope you guys figure it out. I'm leaving. The promise is still to us what it was to them, that he will go with us and will lead us into what he wants to do. One last similarity. Jesus still loves his followers. You know, they may have abandoned him, but you see here, he doesn't abandon them. And it's interesting that of all of them, he sing, you know, singles out Peter particularly. While they had all abandoned him, right, Peter, of course, had gone a little above and beyond the call of duty and had denied our Lord three times. And if it was any of us, we would probably be done with such a person. And yet you see here that Jesus is not. Peter may have denied him. He wasn't going to deny Peter. And the angel specifically wants Peter to know that Jesus will go with him and lead him back into Galilee. And what this does for us is it comforts us, right? Because how many of us have been unfaithful disciples? How many of us have denied our Lord and abandoned our Lord repeatedly? Uh, And yet the grace of God teaches us that if he has set his love on us, if he has chosen us, then nothing can separate us from that love. He died to pay the penalty for our denials and our abandonments and our failures and our unfaithfulness. And he loves us still and will not let us go now. So, so there are your five points of similarity. Now let me show you two points of difference and we'll be done. Difference number one. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see John, the messenger, announcing Jesus' mission, right? Okay, so he's telling everybody what Jesus is going to do. He's going to go and make straight the path of the Lord, etc. Isn't it interesting now here at the end, the angel doesn't just announce what Jesus is going to do, but also announces what his followers are going to do as well? That's a real change. You know, the women are told to go and tell, which I will address specifically next. All of the disciples are supposed to go back into Galilee. No longer is it just about what Jesus was here to do. Now it's about what we are all here to do with him. This is a change from the beginning. And again, I'll I'll develop this a lot more, I think, in our final two messages here in Mark next month. But for now, I I just want you to see that something has changed. It's just not about Jesus anymore. It's about our mission here as well. And what this does for us is it begins to clue us in on the fact that that maybe the story isn't over. We're coming to the end of Mark's gospel, but maybe maybe there's more to the story than we've actually thought about or given uh, uh, deliberate thinking and, and, and meditation to. And maybe it's about us becoming a part of fulfilling God's plan for this world just like Jesus did. Hmm, I guess we'll find out a little more next time. Finally, difference number two. Did you realize that this marks the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus' followers have been commanded to go and tell? What's happened every other time that anyone's wanted to do anything about telling people about Jesus? Don't. Be silent. Don't tell anyone. Keep it quiet. Over and over and over and over again, it's been this constant drumbeat from Jesus. Don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. And all of a sudden now, for the very first time, the disciples, the followers of Jesus are told to go and tell. And what this does for us is it reminds us that our first and primary ministry is that of telling. 
We don't have to convince people. We don't have to make them accept it. We just have to tell. And if I, if I could tie all of this back into where we started, this is why, folks, every Sunday is Easter for us. Because every Sunday, we gather to worship the one who is the central focus of human history and of God's revelation. Every Sunday, we gather together after a week of being on the move and ministering in all the different places that God has put us. He gathers us back together again. Every Sunday, we gather to remember the love and grace of God that never lets go of us despite our failures, our abandonments, our denials. And every Sunday, as we gather and then scatter, we're reminded that we too have a mission, that we now are part of God's plan for this world, and that we are to go and tell this world of who Jesus is and what he has done. This isn't a once-a-year thing. It's just not. I'm glad you like Easter. I'm not trying to be, you know, the Easter Grinch, I promise you. Um, it's just not a once-a-year thing for us. Every Sunday reminds us of these things. For us, every Sunday is Easter. Will you bow your heads? Jesus, I, I come to you and I ask that you apply your word now to our hearts to recognize these truths that are so clearly on display. And we're just, I feel like we're just beginning to scratch the surface. We have a little bit more to go here in Mark where we'll see the fullness of this fact that the story isn't over. The resurrection, certainly while being the culmination of your earthly ministry, isn't the end of your plan. It's the beginning. This is where the church is beginning and things are going to start moving and we get drawn in and we now have a mission with you and you're going before us and leading us. It's, this is the beginning. And so I pray that we will go out from here and remember that that is why you rose from the dead. I pray that we will remember that your death, your burial, your resurrection isn't just to secure our eternal salvation. It's not just fire insurance. It's to set us free to go out and live for you, for you to live your life through us each and every day, to now be ambassadors telling people that they can be made right with God through you. And so, Jesus, will you do that with our church? Will you take the truths of the gospel that we've been seeing here throughout these last months, years here now in Mark, and will you begin to really flesh them out through us, live those truths out through us, to help us to see you as the central focus of human history and of Scripture, to go out in confidence knowing that you have loved us, you have forgiven us, to then be actively participating in what it is that you have left us here to do. Doing this would be a right response to the truths of Easter, not just to go home and find eggs and... Our cultural traditions can be fine, but in this truth here, they cannot trump what it is that you are clearly doing. And so may our hearts and minds be focused on that more than anything else today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.